I like that. The uh, video, when I first saw the video, it reminded me of a book that was written by uh, Sinclair Ferguson. And I love the title of it, By Grace Alone. By Grace Alone. And uh, in his book, he uh, talks about uh, four of the uh, different uh, attacks of the enemy upon uh, believers to try to rob them of their assurance and their peace and their joy in Christ. He says, dart number one, God is against you, similar to what we saw in the video. God is not really for you. How can you believe that God is for you when you see the things that are happening in your life? Uh, been there, done that. Fiery dart number two. I have accusations I will bring against you, sins, Satan argues. What can you say in defense of that? Nothing. Dart three. You can say that you're forgiven, but there is a payday coming, a judgment day of condemnation, Satan insinuates. How could you possibly defend yourself then? Does that maybe ring a bell with some of us here this morning? Fiery dart number four. Given your track record, what hope is there for you to make it to the end? You might as well just give up. And uh, in a variety of ways, the enemy comes against us to, to attack us. This morning, I want to begin a new series that we're, we've titled Breaking Through. Breaking Through. I love the... I'm sorry, Breaking Free. Right. There you go. I love the... the, the, the uh, the graphic that we've chosen to depict the meaning of what it is to break free. If you'll notice, uh, it's not breaking free in our own self or in our own strength or in our own ability, but it's, if we're ever going to be free, it's going to be free from a power outside of ourselves, from a power that is from above. So over the next number of weeks, I want to talk to you about this incredible freedom that we have in Christ, that we're free from guilt and condemnation, that we're free from shame, that we've been set free from, uh, from the oppression of the wicked one, from those accusations that don't, they won't find a place in our hearts. Uh, and I just love that graphic this morning. I, I want to uh, refer to a classic film this morning. Uh, I, I have to qualify it as being a classic film because for some of you, you think of the Maltese Falcon or you think of the, you know, uh, the African Queen as one of those old classics. But uh, my audience is getting younger and as well as those that are getting older. So, so what's a classic today to some might not be a classic to others. But I'll give you an example. The, my, my buddy, uh, Andrew, who led worship, he was about five, maybe six years old at the time. So I doubt if his grandma took him to the movies to watch Braveheart. Uh, I've often referred to Braveheart, some of the, some of the different uh, scenes. Braveheart is about the story of William Wallace, who has led a rebellion for freedom in Scotland against a wicked and tyrannical uh, king of England. And uh, the scene I want to refer to uh, is uh, the climax, really, of the movie. And uh, he's been betrayed by a friend. He's been imprisoned. Uh, now he's waiting execution. And on the day of execution before an assembled city, he's going to be made an example of. He's not just going to lose his life. He is going to be tortured beyond, beyond belief. So first they string him up by his neck and they stretch out his arms and his legs. 
north, south, east, and west, pull, pulling him apart. And then, then the real torture begins. They put him on a table in the shape of a cross. And the prosecutor goes over and he says to him before all the people, he says, all you have to do is to end this, all this pain. You don't have to experience all this suffering. All you have to do is beg the king's kindness and ask for mercy and he will grant you mercy and a swift death. Of course, William Wallace doesn't respond. And so now the real torture begins. They begin to cut him from his chest bone down. They begin to disembowel him. I can't imagine what that is like to have, I won't even go there, but but to think about the excruciating pain. And then the prosecutor bends over and speaks to him one more time and says, all of this suffering can and all of your pain can all go away if you, just, if you just cry out for mercy. And at that point, you wonder, can he even speak at all because he's in such tremendous pain? And then somehow, somewhere from the depth of his soul comes out a cry that is not only heard in the streets before the people, but has gone into the very chamber of the king where he's dying on his deathbed. And it was that shout of freedom, freedom. That's how important freedom is to the human spirit. God, I believe, has given to us this DNA within us of this desire to be free. I don't know if they teach this in in school anymore, but back in the day, you know, they taught about the American Revolution, and I remember the phrase from, from Patrick Henry, you know. He spoke that, I believe it was in the, in the Virginia seat of whatever it was called, seat of commons or something like that. But, it, but he gave such a stern speech that it inspired a generation to take a stand against tyranny. He said, give me liberty or give me death. And he meant it. And many of the signers of the declaration actually did lose their lives being captured by the British and being executed for treason. But the statement, give me liberty or give me death, what does it mean? It means that life isn't worth living unless you could live it as a free person. That's how important freedom is to the human soul. So this morning, I want to talk to you about the greatest freedom of all that we have is that there is a freedom in Christ. But I want to tell you, just as, just as there is a bondage and there is a prison that is absolutely the worst kind of prison, not the physical prison, but the worst kind of prison of all is being a prisoner and not knowing it. Being in bondage and not knowing that you're in bondage. A lion that's born in captivity. And all that it knows is the, is the circumference of its, of its cage doesn't know what liberty is, doesn't know what freedom is, doesn't know what it's like to, to roam in the, in the jungle or to hunt for, for its food. And so it never knew what freedom was. And for many, many people, they, they never knew what freedom was. Another movie classic, this time, my buddy Andrew, Andrew, hi, is about 10 or 11 years old at the time. And again, now still too young to go to the green room, and probably still too young to go to the movies on his own to see this story that's about the human race that has been brought into a virtual reality. It is a, it is a reality subsisting of stimulated digital graphics and computer images. Uh, the people are not free. The human race is not free. They have been 
harvesting their, their, their heat and their electrical impulses to feed the machines that are now ruling the world. That, that movie is called The Matrix. And it was all about the deception and how shocking it was. If you've seen the movie, the lead character by the name of Neo was absolutely shocked to discover that his eyes really never, he never really did see and his, and his ears never really did hear. It was all digitally imprinted upon him by the, by the computer. You know, I got to say that there's, there's a similarity. And one of the reasons why a theme like, like freedom and a theme like bondage and, and deception like that is so popular in, in the, our culture is because it taps into something of the human psyche. It taps into a reality that is in our own culture and in our own society. When you read for the first time Ephesians chapter 2, it's almost shocking to realize that, that the human race is now being controlled and manipulated by the prince He's called the prince of the power of the air. Elsewhere, he's called the prince of darkness. That the whole world lies in the embrace or lying in the bosom of the wicked one. That this is the one that has deceived the whole world, the Bible says. And that men are merely being manipulated as the children of disobedience, and therefore they are the children of wrath. And this is the, the true state of everyone born into our present world. It takes something of an absolute miracle to get us out of bondage. God literally has to, has to kidnap us out of the kingdom of darkness and translate us into the kingdom of the son of his love if we're ever going to see the light. Think about this. Why do men love darkness rather than the light? Jesus said that. He said, they won't come into the light unless there's a miracle to bring us into the light of truth and reality. We prefer the darkness. I, I, do, just do an experiment this week. Go out into your garden or your mama's garden, however that may be, and just find a rock that's in the garden. And just go ahead and in the, in the light of day, just turn over that rock and see what happens. And you'll soon see that all of these little buggers begin to scatter and they, they begin to find some place of darkness. They begin to scurry along because they don't like the light. They live in the darkness. And man is like that, living in the darkness. We sang about that in some of the songs that we opened with this morning. We prefer the darkness, but only a miracle that is equal to and equivalent to comparison of the resurrection itself, that we who were dead in trespasses and in sins are made alive in Christ. And we're given that, as the video stated, we're, we, we become new creations in Christ Jesus. In John chapter 8, I'm going to look at a couple of verses in the beginning of the chapter in a couple of minutes, but down toward the, round toward the end of the chapter, I want to I make my point about how could you live in bondage and not even know it, not even realize it, be so blind to it? Here's, here's an example right from the word of God this morning. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to at least three different groups of people, his own disciples, he's in the temple area, and then there were those who wanted to become followers of Jesus and wanted to learn more about what he had to say and what he believed. But then there were those that were his critics, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, who were always present as well to try to find something to accuse him with. Okay, so, so this, 
is John 8, verse 31. The Jews who had believed him, who had believed upon Jesus, Jesus said to them, if you hold to my teachings, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. You will be my disciples indeed. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. For whom the Son will make free will truly be free indeed. It was for freedom that Christ has come to set us free. So they take the religious leaders and I respond. They take offense at what Jesus is saying. And they answered him saying, we are Abraham's descendants, have never been slaves of anyone. How could you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. I mean, there's several things going on here. Number one, Jesus is talking about the greatest bondage of all, and that is being in bondage to the prince of the power of the air by being a slave to sin. But not only that, but you could see the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders because they say, we've never been in bondage. We're, we're Abraham's descendants. Guys, did you forget about 400 years of slavery in Egypt? Did you forget about Nebuchadnezzar coming and sacking the city of Jerusalem and taking away captive all of the people? Did you forget about the various times that the Assyrians came and brought you as slaves and carried you away? Or even at the present moment when foreign troops were, were governing your cities and the Roman Empire was exercising dominion over your nation. Now, there, there's no blindness like spiritual blindness. There's no, there's no bondage like spiritual bondage. This is why Jesus came. He said, I've come to set at liberty those that are bound. In fact, one of the first sermons that Jesus preached in his home church or in his synagogue, if you will, almost cost him his life. He found the scroll of Isaiah where it says in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners or the captives. At first, the people said, wow, what gracious words coming from his lips. But others said, where did this man get all this knowledge and wisdom from? Is not his mother Mary and his brothers with us? And is this not the carpenter's son? As Jesus began to peel back or to throw open the, the curtain upon their spiritual condition, their, their depravity, their lostness, and their need for grace, it got them so angry and so infuriated that they tried to throw him over the hill upon which the city was built. They were offended that he had come to proclaim liberty to the captives. No, we're not, we're not, we're not in bondage. But this is because men love darkness rather than the light. So here is, here is our conundrum. Here is, here is our problem. Here is our dilemma. How could, how could we have a relationship with God if God is holy and we're not? If God is perfect and, and we are so, so flawed. If we, if we sin and God is the sinless one. How could, how could that ever possibly be reconciled? And so the statement is our dilemma. How can God be both holy and gracious, just and merciful? There's no two further polarizing truths 
Justice and mercy are on complete opposite ends. How could they ever possibly be, be reconciled? Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to court, if you've ever stood before a judge, you know, been there, done that. I remember the first time I got a traffic ticket, I was about 19 years old. I was riding in my Mustang on Union Turnpike, right off of Woodhaven Boulevard. I remember the, even though it happened a long time ago, I remember the exact place where the cop pulled me over, fell into a speed trap, got a ticket. Really wasn't my fault. I had just met this beautiful girl by the name of Kathy Jean Noel. Lord, it's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. I was distracted. I, was, I wasn't concentrating on my, on my driving. I was just daydreaming about this beautiful girl that I just met. And, and so, and so I, I went to court to try to fight this ticket. I was guilty. And when I got to stand before the judge, I said, there are mitigating circumstances. He says, what's the mitigating circumstances? Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I, I really just throw myself upon the mercy of the court because I did not want justice. Beloved, when you're guilty, you don't want justice. Because justice will nail you. What you want is mercy. But how is God going to be both just and the justifier of those that believe? Is he he, he going to to wink us all into heaven while he punishes the angelic orders that left their place of habitation that have been reserved in, Bible says, everlasting chains of darkness ready to be reserved for judgment at the last day? Is God going to punish the the angels who sinned because men have sinned just as bad as the, b- both have committed treason. So how is God going to correct and how is God going to answer the dilemma of the human race? How is he going to be true to his own character without, without violating his own holiness or without violating his own justice and be merciful at the same time? Now at the Beginning of chapter 8, the end of chapter 7. By the way, I want, I want to just, just, just throw this out there because maybe some of your translations have this. I don't want you to be shook up by this. Some translations have in like parentheses that John 7, verse, uh, the last verse there, and then chapter 8 through the first 11 verses are not in some of the older manuscripts, right? Right? Uh, and so some liberal theologians believe that this shouldn't be a part of Scripture, but for reasons I don't have the time to go into this morning, I absolutely believe with all my heart that this is a part of the inerrant Word of God and should absolutely consistently be in there. First of all, it wouldn't make sense if it was missing. It makes perfect sense because it's there. But I, I, love, I love the end of chapter 7 and the first verse of, of verse 8. Notice what it says. There's a connecting thought. And it's so simple, and yet it's also one of the reasons why we ought to worship him and praise him. Listen to what it says. It says, then each one went his own way home. Now, what had happened? Let me just set up what had happened in chapter 7. In chapter 7, the the religious leaders are absolutely beside themselves. They're angry at the temple guards who were sent to arrest Jesus and to bring him back to stand before the Sanhedrin. Right? And they come back empty-handed and, and, and they say, why didn't you bring him? 
And their response is because no man has ever spoken like this before. We, we, we just, we couldn't, nobody's ever spoken like this before. And they were angry and they said, why, are you deceived also? Are any of the leaders believing in him? You know, and so, so they're angry, right? And at, the, at that point of frustration, they don't know what else to do. So it says, it says, then each went to his own home. But Jesus, the connecting thought word, conjunction, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So simple and yet also so profound because, because while they had homes to go to, that the one who came from heaven had nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to call his home. You know, it tells me, it tells me that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich. He goes to the Mount of Olives, probably to the Garden of Gethsemane where there was an olive grove and a garden where he often went. He probably slept there with his disciples. Then it says this in verse two, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people had gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. That is those that were really interested and really wanted to hear what he had to say were, were listening as he sat down and began to teach. And the teachers of the law, these are not lawyers, these are, these are theologians whose whole job it was to interpret the word of God, or to interpret the laws of God. And the Pharisees, they brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, now they interrupt Jesus. He's teaching the people, now they are so anxious to entrap him and to catch him in some fault that they are going to spring this trap upon him. And so they said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. They didn't care about the woman. They, didn't care. they, they weren't shocked at her behavior or were they grieved because she broke the law of God. She was just being used for, to further their agenda. And, and do you ever stop and think, it takes two to commit adultery. Where was the man? Was, was this woman just absolutely completely set up? That's my opinion, that they looked for a cause. They were so anxious to, to capture him that they, that they created a scenario by which they thought, surely we got him between a rock and a hard place. There's no way he's going to get out of this. This woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the Lord of Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? We got him. No matter what he says, no matter how he responds, we have got him. Because if he says, let her go, be merciful to her. We can accuse him of being wishy-washy and being weak on the law and being just in favor of sin. And what about his statement that I've come not to destroy the Lord, the prophets, but to fulfill. He's a flip-flopper. We got him. Or, on the other hand, if he said, go ahead, stoner, that's what the law says. Then what about his word 
about, I've not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through me the world might be saved? What about his reputation as being the friend of sinners and all those stories that we hate that, that he told us about lost coins and lost sheep and lost sons? Again, we got it. We got him between a rock and a heart. There's no place he can get out of this. It says, but Jesus bent down and started to write upon the ground with his finger when they kept on questioning him. So he is not really paying great attention to them. He stooped down and he's beginning to write upon the ground specifically, not with a stick, not with a rock, but with his finger. They don't get the symbolism of what he's portraying for us, but we could see. Where, where, where have we seen that before? God gave to Moses the tablets of stone, the Bible says, written with the finger of God. And Jesus is writing, and I don't think that it's, it's speculation for us to see what Jesus was writing there on the ground. He straightened up and he said to them, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote upon the ground a second time. Why did he do that a second time? Because if you know the history, Moses broke the first tablets of stone and God gave to him a second set. He said, don't break it this time. With the finger of God, God gave Moses the law of God. So he bent down and he began to write a second time upon the ground. The only one who is deserving, the only one who is in the right place to throw a stone is somebody obviously who hasn't sinned. So you guys, whoever of you is without sin, go ahead, be, be the first one. And so they could not because they were just as guilty of sin as we're all born and shapen in iniquity. And in sin did our mother bear us. There's a sin nature that we were born with. You don't t teach children how to be bad. It just comes real natural. You never have to teach a child how to lie. It just comes real natural because of a sin nature. And he stooped and he wrote on ground a second time. At this, verse 9 says, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, the whole place is cleared out. All the accusers are gone. But the woman, she could have walked away too, but she didn't. Tells me something about the woman. Tells me something about Jesus that Sinners are attracted by Jesus, attracted to Jesus. Verse 10 says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no, Lord. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go now and leave your life of sin. Leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. I'm so glad he didn't reverse that. I'm so glad Jesus didn't say, go and sin no more and I won't condemn you. But in the power of saying, I will not condemn you, there is the power to overcome 
sin and temptation. The power is contained within the words of Jesus. Now notice, notice what's happening here. There are no witnesses to charge her, to accuse her. And there's no one because the witnesses themselves were to be personally involved with carrying out the crime of execution. And since there were no witnesses, there would be none to carry out the crime. Therefore, Jesus, in fulfillment of the law, not in its violation, but keeping to what the law said, said, neither do I condemn you. You need two witnesses for truth to be established. Jesus, in this process, is condemning sin without condemning the woman. For he says, go and sin no more. But at the very heart of his words, at the very soul of his words, there's something else that's going on. And that is that Jesus himself, within a few days from what is recorded here in John chapter 8, is about to take her punishment upon himself. He's about to bear the penalty for her sin and the shame and the guilt of her sins and all of our sins in his own body upon the tree. The Bible says that by my righteous servant, he shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquity. The sin bearer through this gift of substitution, through this this amazing wisdom of God that neither angels nor devils or, or, or Satan himself could have ever Fathom that God becomes now just and the justifier of those that believe. And it's through righteousness that he does this. We have, beloved, a fourfold salvation. It's easy to remember. I'm going to teach you four Ps this morning. We are saved from, number one, the penalty of sin. We are saved, number two, from the power of sin. Number three, we're saved from the pleasure of sin. And the ultimate deliverance will be being saved from the very presence of sin. So very briefly, being saved from the penalty of sin. Because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin. Because he bore the sin of the world. Because of that, there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Not now, not ever past, present, and future sins, we have been so radically set free that I could say to you with all boldness that every sin that has or ever will be committed by those who are in Christ Jesus have been paid for in full. It is finished, Jesus declared. The very power of sin has been broken because Jesus made an end of sin's power. The principle of indwelling sin has been broken. I am no longer under the mandatory, I've got to sin because I'm a slave to sin. No, now I can choose to live and to present my members as members of righteousness. I could choose to live as pleasing unto God. The penalty has been paid for in full. The second is that we've been delivered from the power of sin. Sin no longer exercises power and dominion over us. Now we can resist the devil and he will flee from us because greater is he that is in us than the one that is in the world. We can bring forth the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus. And not only negatively is there no guilt or condemnation for us or shame any longer, but positively we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. 
which means that we cannot improve upon God's righteousness. We will never be more righteous than we are the moment that the Holy Spirit seals us in Christ. And we are sealed by the Spirit of God until the day of redemption. The third deliverance that we experience is a deliverance from the very pleasure of sin. Sin is no longer what it once was to us. It's no longer that pleasure-filled enjoyment that we once had. Just, just if, you, if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you know that when you stumbled, how does it make you feel? When you fall back into sin, how, how, does that make you feel good? Does that make you feel absolutely miserable? And you can't wait to get back into a fellowship and peace with God because you're not what you once were. You are a new creation in Christ. Old things pass away. All things are becoming new. And that's a process. And though we are not yet completely perfect, we are not yet, we've not yet apprehended that for which God has laid hold of us. Yet there is a, a thing in our spirit. There's a pressing toward the mark of the high calling of God that's in Christ Jesus for us. We are pressing to be like him to be conformed to his image. And that fourth P, that last P that I want to just reference to you this morning is that, and I say this with a longing in my heart, and I know that whenever I've spoken about this, it's like, it's like there's a, a, a ray of hope that rises up in the soul of those who hear and those who, who first discover that there is a day coming when there's not going to be a universe any longer that's going to know sin that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness, that there'll be no more sin and all the consequences of sin, the pain that goes along with it, the suffering, the death, the sickness, all of that's going to be eradicated. The ultimate deliverance, deliverance from the very presence of sin. What a great Savior we have this morning. My last point this morning, today, before we close, is that this freedom that we have is so radical that, you know what, a lot of people say this is too good to be true. I mean, e even the translators of the King James Bible in 1611, when they came to Romans 8, verse 1, where it says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, thought, we, we can't leave it like that. That's too dangerous. So they lifted a part of verse 3 and put it in the same verse who walk not according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. No, the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us so radically free from the law of sin and death that we are not condemned. Guilt has been broken. Shame has been removed from us. You see, until you can begin to see yourself as God sees you through the wounds of his Son, until you can begin to see yourself as God sees you, perfect, flawless, covered in the righteousness of God's Son, you'll always be harassed. You'll always be, be assaulted by the powers of darkness with those fiery darts. And God wants you to rise up this morning and to know, to know that you know that it's a matter of God's holiness that you be forgiven, that you be without guilt or condemnation. I said it's a matter of his holiness. Last verse, 1 John Chapter 1, I want you to notice with me what it does not say as well as it, what it does say. 
It says, if we confess our sins. Let me just pause here for a minute because John is dealing with a group of people that, that kind of are under the impression that because we're Christians now, we no longer sin. We no longer mess up. But John says, if anyone says that he has not sinned and the truth is not in him, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, so that's the context. And so he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Please notice what it did not say. It did not say he is faithful and merciful to forgive us. The thing I said a little while ago is what we wanted initially by the bar of God's court is that we didn't want justice. We wanted mercy then. But now we want justice. Why? Because it is the just and right thing. To, it's no longer, if you're in Christ, you're not forgiven today on the basis of God's mercy. Yeah, it was his mercy that sent his son not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy that initially sent the son to the cross. Yeah, absolutely. God is absolutely merciful. But today we stand on the legal ground of justification by faith. That is just as if we had never sinned and it's a legal position before God. And he does so justly, not on the basis of mercy which means that my sins have been paid for in full, past, present, and future, which means that it would be absolutely unjust and unrighteous of God to extract from me someday payment for payment that's already been made. Sin has already been punished in the Son. And if sin has already been punished in the substitute, it can't be punished again. Not in me not in those of you who are in Christ. We are free. For whom the Son makes free is free indeed. Now what I want you to know this morning, that only Christ can set you free. Only Christ can set you free. So think about that. If Christ has not set you free, then you are still in your sins. Then you are not free this morning. But if Christ has set you free, then you are indeed free, forever free, to know a relationship with God where you can resist the enemy, where you can extinguish those fiery darts of accusation and blame and, and belittling, where you could be the son or daughter of God that God has called you to be. If you've never done that, if, if you can't say with all your heart this morning, Christ has set me free, can I invite you to do that today? Because he is the great liberator. He is the, the one who's come to set at liberty, to set the captives free. A transaction has to take place. He's already given himself. What you need to do is receive him. And you do that not with a magic formula, but with a, an expression of heart faith. For with, for with the heart men believe unto salvation. With the mouth confession is made thereof. Right where you are right now, just, just invite Jesus to come into your heart. To be the substitute for your sins. 
and that he will set you free. And you begin a journey of freedom that will never, ever end. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the grace of God and for the emancipation and the deliverance that you've provided for those of us who are in Jesus, who believe in Jesus. And as Jesus said, those of you who continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I thank you, Lord, that while the law came by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ and we have all received of his grace, grace heaped upon grace because it's only by grace that we receive the unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor of God. We are not just simply forgiven. No, we're more than that. We are, we are made the righteousness of God in Christ. God, you were in Christ reconciling the world unto yourself, not counting our sins. You made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might be in turn made the righteousness of God in Christ. Father, I thank you for my personal freedom. I thank you that you've delivered me over the years from a number of, of debilitating sins, that you've delivered me from addictions, that you've delivered me, Lord God, from the penalty of the law, that you've delivered me from the power of sin and even its pleasure. And what many of my brothers and sisters this morning, we long for the day when Jesus even so, we say, come, Lord Jesus, that you would set us free from the very presence of sin. 